The Water Values Podcast, Session 135. to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. As always, have a great show for you today. We have a Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale and then we have a, a fantastic interview by Chris Peacock. Uh, who is, uh, for those of you, for longtime listeners, you'll remember him from uh, back in episode 31. And uh, Chris has started up a new company, uh, and he's going to tell us all about this company, which it's it's it, it's amazing what Chris has done. I, when I re-listened to the, the interview, I thought, wow, he's just doing great work. Um, but before we get there, I do need to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. My goal was to hit... 100 by the end of the year. I thought that was, you know, might be pushing it. Uh, we had 96 as of the last recording. And in the intervening uh, couple of weeks, we are up to 101 ratings on Apple Podcasts. We got five more. Uh, four of them are five stars. We got one four star rating. And we got a fantastic review by Mike Thomas of the Georgia Association of Water Professionals on Apple Podcasts. Uh, he goes by Watermike58, and he says, Great podcast for the water industry. For someone who likes to stay current in my industry, this is a great resource for utility employees, consultants, and vendors. Mike Thomas, Georgia Association of Water Professionals. So, Mike, thank you for the great review on Apple Podcasts and for the, the, the five-star rating. Really appreciate it. And, and this just kind of brings out something I've kind of noticed, this trend of, uh, people leaving kind of who they are in the rating um, and the review. So we had Greg Pierce of the UCLA Luskin Center who uh, left a fantastic rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And uh, Mike Thomas, now of the Georgia Association of Water Professionals, followed that up. It, 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 that really, that, that really uh, speaks to me because you know, these, these individuals who hold significant positions have, have left their names and things of that nature on their rating and review uh, to let others know that this is a good podcast. And so thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. it, uh, it I, I can't tell you enough uh, how thankful I am that you guys find this information that we put out uh, every two weeks or so um, uh, useful and you're, you're enjoying it and think it's, think it's good stuff. So Again, thank you to everyone who's rated and reviewed the podcast. And if if you haven't, what are you waiting for? I get out on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to, to it's easy to rate it. I'd love it if you'd left a great review too. So thanks so much. Uh, so here we are, where we have Reese Tisdale, who's going to talk with us a little about water in the ag sector, uh, what he's noticed uh, in terms of irrigation and things like that. And um, with that, let's kick it to Reese. Well, Reese, welcome back for another Bluefin on Tap session. How you doing? Uh, Red Sox won the World Series. Oh, jeez. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, man. Well, congratulations to the Red yeah. Sox. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Mariners fan, and uh, my season's usually over around the end of May. Uh, we hung around a little longer this year, but uh, there's all, you know, we'll, well see. I don't know. It's It never gets old. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, let's get to the water sector. Uh, so, so uh, what is on your mind? What kind of has caught your attention uh, recently in the water sector? I mean, I, as you know, we're looking at a, a whole list of different uh, topics and themes in the water sector. What's happening? One thing that uh, 
Actually, I think may line up with uh, with your guest that you're speaking to later, and that has to do with uh, Jane, the India India-based irrigation company that uh, is recently acquired uh, ET Water in California. It's really interesting to see what's happening. On one part of my thinking is also in the commercial space and sort of what commercial property owners and on the domestic side where things are happening with water management. Uh, it's getting a little bit smarter, and it seems like California is, is the market to be, as usual. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, so what does that Jane acquisition of ET, what does that signify, or what does that where, – where does that – what kind of clues does that give us to, to where investment in smart water is headed? Well, I think, you know, what, like it's, it's their fourth deal since 2015. So Jane has been building out its uh, – it's, it's North America based. Its revenues in, in North America as a whole have gone from about 10% in 2014, I believe, to 17% in 2018. I think a big part of that is sort of this growth in smarter irrigation, more advanced technologies and solutions, both in monitoring and, and water controls. And so what we've seen there is, you know, while their revenues have grown, their share in North America has grown. Big part of that, obviously, we're talking California, but this is something that's applicable in the rest of the U.S., particularly in the more arid parts of the U.S., where there has been drought um, and, quite honestly, advanced irrigation systems. It still remains a pretty small part of irrigation as a whole. It's about 8% of, of the U.S. market, which is different. They need to get put it in context, somewhere like Israel would be 95%. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of growth to be had in the U.S. And I think water as a whole is is in the news. I think people are more aware of it, both from homeowners but also commercial property owners. Yeah, when, I guess when I think of irrigation, I think of scarcity, right? Because yeah. if, if you got plenty that's fallen from the sky, you don't need to irrigate. And and with how the you know all the climate change models that you see coming around, pretty much, you know, if I could sum them up, they say. Uh, you're going to have you're going to have long periods of no water and then really intense periods of water. So it's, they're, they're, those those extreme weather events are going to concentrate. And so, uh, you know, do you do you see kind of the climate models as driving some of this irrigation acquisition activity and irrigation growth? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. And I think part of it also is you're looking at what's happening in, in California. Regulators are more aware of it. They're trying to figure out what's happening with water withdrawals, but also more efficient use of water. I mean, I think like any, we've talked a lot about digital water, digital water strategies. Part of the, the first step is understanding the water flows and what the challenges are. And then the next step is becoming more efficient uh, in using that data and analytics. So absolutely, I, it's kind of amazing right now, you know, whether it be California where, you know, there is arid, uh, particularly in the Central Valley, but also uh, the Central Coast. And then you're finding places like Venice right now, which are flooding. Um, it's so, yeah, and it's going to change and there's going to be a lot of volatility. But, yeah, water scarcity is the primary driver. Yeah, and and so you 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 identify the ag sector as well as you know commercial properties, which you know not everyone thinks about. Um, uh, do you have a, any thoughts on which of those two is kind of the bigger play? Well, I think you know the commercial it, that's going to happen. I mean, you're seeing new buildings. Obviously, the greenfield development is where you're going to see more activity. It's easier to install uh, reuse systems. Uh, you know. Uh, 
you know, sep separate pipe networks into new build rather than retrofits. It's just a lot easier. So we've talked about it. We're seeing San Francisco as a market leader in this area. And there are a number, I think we track, you know, 35 to 40 companies providing different types of systems and solutions, uh, mostly in California, but elsewhere. I think agriculture is, I mean, it is the 800-pound gorilla uh, when it comes to industrial water usage. It uses a lot of water. You know, it obviously sort of runs through the, the hydrologic cycle as it's used and evaporates and so forth. But I think people see that as a real opportunity. You know, is there a slow shift away from pivot irrigation to more advanced drip irrigation systems? But also monitoring. I mean, everything from companies are using drones to measure uh, you know, moisture in the soils to other sensors and new technologies. So think and also much of it is private so they're private they're privately run privately operated so there's i think companies at least vendors see it as an opportunity because it may move a little bit faster than you're seeing in contrast in what i would say the municipal water sector yeah yeah I, i'm glad you kind of characterize it as the 800 pound gorilla because I, I guess from my simple mind i you got to have the food supply right and that's where the ag comes in whereas the commercial properties I would look at, uh, from an irrigation perspective, at least, you know, there's a, there's another alternative because um, they could zeroscape their their yeah. their areas, and so that would alleviate the need to even irrigate. So I guess it's yeah. it's kind of an economic model there. Um, well, awesome. Anything else uh, in, in that sector that's kind of catching your eye? I mean, there have been other deals that we've seen happen. I think we covered some deal flow, Mexichem acquired Netafim last year. So that was a big deal. So Mexichem, chemical company that, you know, Netafim is out of Israel. They bring a lot of, of uh, experience into the sector. So that was obviously a play. And then we saw Lindsay that recently acquired uh, a machine-to-machine -machine learning company. I think it was Alexis. So there is activity happening there. I think, you know, I was actually having a conversation with someone last night at, uh, at the Celtics game of all places, and we were talking about uh, we were talking about water and really the future of agriculture as a whole. So, what is the impact of agriculture, and how is that sector growing? But also, what's the impact of uh, what it is? What is its impact on water usage? So, is that going to change? Not necessarily next year or the next five years, but what is it going to look like in twenty to thirty years? And so, there's a lot happening in the space. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Reese, thanks again for your time today. You've been awesome uh, as normal, but uh, appreciate it and uh, happy holidays to you. Yeah, you too. All right. Well, as always, Reese Tisdale does a great job with the market insights provided by Bluefield Research on our Bluefield on Tap segment. Um, great stuff, as always. Reese, thank you so much for your uh, for the time you put in on this and, and, and uh, sharing some of your insights uh, with us on the Bluefield on Tap segment. Now it's time to turn to our interview with Chris Peacock, who is absolutely fantastic. You're really going to – it's a wide-ranging interview. We go – you know, Chris started Aqua Oso Technologies recently, um, and he is in a unique space in the water sector trying to identify water risk, trying to, to quantify water risk and to mitigate that water risk. And uh, it is, it's a really, again, a wide-ranging interview. I think you're going to learn a lot from Chris because he does a fantastic job. I'm, I'm kind of all over the place in terms of, of all these questions because there was so much going through my mind uh, when, when the interview was going on. And, I, you know, Chris, Chris handled everything just, you know, 
impeccably. He did a great job. And without further ado, let's just get to it. Here is my interview with Chris Peacock. Well, Chris, welcome back to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you you could come back on. Uh, uh, tell us a little about what you're doing these days. What's what's changed since we talked last? Yeah, thanks, Dave. It's really great to talk to you again. It's it's been a little while, and uh, I think like you, I've had significant changes in my life over the past few years. Yeah. Last time we talked, I was just getting ready to uh, release the book that you contributed to. Um, you know, we launched that. We had really great success with the book, Damned If We Don't. Um, it actually won a couple of awards, which was really cool to see. Shortly after that, we did a Water Energy Nexus Hackathon in San Francisco, which was really cool. Um, really spent a few years running around North America, working on the, the smart meter space and the building side. Um, you know, talking a lot about smart meters and, and the ways in which technology is evolving in the water utility space with Fathom. Um, but a couple of years ago, I saw a really interesting opportunity here in California to basically help better manage data in relationship to water resources. So I launched yet another company, <laughs> Technologies. Um, I think I, I think I think I chuckled over that. Can you say the name again, please? Yeah, the name is Aquosa Technologies. Okay, so like yeah, like Water Bear. Bear. The Water Bear. The Water Bear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a bit of a nod to a bit of a nod to California. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so tell us a little about uh, Aqua Oso. Yeah. So Aqua Oso is really focused on building a water resilient future. Um, I took a different approach to building a business this time. We're a software company, but we're also a public benefit corporation, which means that we understand there's a social component as we talk about water. Uh, we are a for-profit entity, um, but really what we're focused on right now is leveraging machine learning, data science, and powerful mapping tools to help the agricultural economy reduce and mitigate water-related risks. Um, California, as many people know, have, it's, it's experienced some real significant weather events over the past uh, few years, going from extreme drought to extreme flooding in certain areas. And so we've been able to build some really interesting technology and tools to help investors and bankers and farm managers better understand, identify, and monitor water-related risks. All right. So, I mean, that sounds very interesting. Now, um, uh, for, for, I guess for the layperson out there, you know, just saying, oh, there's water risk in California, that's, that's one thing. But let's do a little dive into uh, the types of risks that you're seeing that, that Aqua Oso can kind of, you know, help, help uh, quantify and, and mitigate against. So can you, can you kind of dive into the, the various segments that, that you're looking at there? Yeah, absolutely, Dave. So at, at the highest level, there's some really great tools out there like uh, WWF's Water Risk Filter or WRI's Aqueduct, which helps identify kind of changes in water and risk in water at a, at a global macro level. And so what we found was it was really challenging to identify specific water risks all the way down to an individual piece of property. So in California today, what we're seeing are a combination of not just weather events, but also policy changes in the ways in which groundwater is being managed and monitored here in California. So we look at everything from weather events to irrigation districts and the way irrigation districts are allocating water across the state. Um, we're looking at the groundwater changes and the allocations that are starting to come into play here in California, which is very new to the state. Um, it's interesting for, for California, which is a state really well known for being environmentally um, sustainable and focused on the environment, 
water has been one of those few things, at least groundwater, one of those few things that hasn't been well managed up until recently. So we're seeing a bit of, uh, a bit of whiplash across the state as new groundwater rules are, are coming into effect in the management of those rules. So as a company, we're tracking those regulations um, and we're really what we're doing is we're tracking the implications of those regulations across the agricultural sector. So certain parts of California are gonna have a reduction of the amount of groundwater that they can use for pumping onto farms and fields, which is gonna have a significant impact, not just on the growers in the area, but the financial capabilities of the lenders um, that have historically been lending money to the area. Right. And what we're seeing are our banks and lending institutions are getting calls from the regulators now. Um, the investors are getting calls from their investment groups because they keep seeing these headlines about California water and drought and Sigma and all of these crazy things. And people are trying to get their arms wrapped around what that actually means from both an investment and a lending perspective. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a, a great insight. You know, in, in terms of California agricultural, can you – can you kind of talk about the market in general? Because it's a it, it's a bigger market than I think many of us think about. Um, you know, when we when we hear ag, you know, a lot of us think, oh, Corn Belt, you know. Uh, but you you take the drive south of San Francisco and drive through all the, uh, you know, all the all the farm fields and things like that. I mean, it gives you an, an appreciation for California's ag footprint. So, can you talk about kind of the the ag market just in general? Yeah, absolutely. So. California is very different from the Midwest and other states. Um, I, I forget the exact number of crops, but there's hundreds of different crops that are grown in California, and a lot of them are specialty crops. So table grapes, wine grapes, almonds, walnuts, pistachios, um, citrus, cotton, like the, the gamut runs across the board in terms of what is grown here in California. And the value of that market is significant. Um, I think farm gate value over the past few years has been $46 billion or so across the state. So there's a lot of money that's invested in California. And land prices in California are significantly different than what you might be able to see in other parts of the country. Um, I actually just came off of a road show with Farmer Mac here in California. And they were talking about some of the investment opportunities and lending opportunities in California. So just for some perspective, like some of these lenders are lending up to $50 million for operations and land here in California. And if you translate that financial capability into the Midwest, you can buy almost an entire county of land for that. Whereas <laughs> here in California, you can buy, you know, a, a medium-sized farm. So um, the value of the crops are significantly higher in California than they are in other parts of the country because of the specialty um, that we see here. Yeah, And also because of that, we, we see more intense uses of water as well here in California. Almonds are probably one of the largest users of water, but it's also got one of the highest economic impacts. Um, so trying to find the balance of where water can and should go across the state is definitely the latest challenge that California farmers are, are dealing with. Yeah, so uh, when, when you kind of were introducing this, this, this subject, you were talking about you know, the groundwater regulation, some of the changes that are coming on. I, I would like to explore some of the trends uh, that you have seen in water in California and, and you know, how, uh, let's just say, how the, the trends in the dig digital technology to, to serve those, those water trends. Can, can, you, can you kind of flesh that out for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think the last time we spoke, Dave, I, I gave you kind of a brief overview of how I got into water, right? Which was building water markets in northern Arizona. And so there's, there's an interesting corollary between Arizona and California. In the early 80s, Arizona put into place um, groundwater regulations and created classes and classifications of groundwater rights in the state. California, while they're not necessarily creating a new set of groundwater rights, um, they are finally putting the regulations in place to manage groundwater. And so what we're seeing in California is now the ability to reallocate water across the state from a groundwater perspective, which has created really interesting opportunities on the technology side. Um, you know, a few years ago, if I, if I liken this to the water utility space, which you're very familiar with, um, you know, smart technologies were having a hard time really getting a footprint because people were having a hard time understanding the ROI of those technologies. Um, but in the recent years, we're starting to see, right, in the utility space, a greater uptick in smart meters being placed out in the fields and out at the homes. And the data coming back now has multiple places to go to be analyzed, right? When you look at some of the M&A activity in the water utility space with Valor, um, when you look at some of the artificial intelligence coming into play like Imagine, you can really see how the data can be transitioned and transferred into making better decisions. And so we're starting to see the same opportunities here in California. So as groundwater becomes monitored more frequently, there's similar opportunities to manage and monitor wells in terms of where water is going and how it's getting there, putting devices out in the field to identify the crop use of water and the patterns of that crop use. Um, we're seeing more and more weather stations being placed out in the fields and soil controls out in the fields. But the problem that the space is really having today is what do you do with all of that data? And it's the same problem that almost every industry has encountered over time. Um, I think the water utility space is finally figuring out what to do with all of that data. And the agricultural space is just now kind of on the edge of figuring out what to do and where that data can go. Yeah. So for us, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I, I, go ahead. I, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, so please continue on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I can get winded at times, Dave, so uh, jump in. At no, no problem. I, I, believe me, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in if I need to, but, but I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you. Yeah, not a problem. So, so what we did at Aquoso was start to build a data and technology platform to not just gather the data, but actually map it as well. So we've taken 20 plus data sets um, that exist in the public domain around water rights and groundwater levels, well information, um, crop patterns. We've put all of that into a geospatial database and we've gone out and collected our own information as well around allocations across the state, um, weather information um, and other proprietary data that we've been able to bring into the platform that now allows us to very holistically not just put the data sets together so that they make more sense, but actually geospatially map them as well so that people can not just make better decisions, but identify where those decisions should be made. Right. And, and, and so I assume with your technology background, that's, that was kind of the inspiration for starting this company. Um, uh, you know, essentially marrying up uh, the, 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 the data with, uh, you know, the digital platform and obviously water. Absolutely. I mean, after 20 years in the water space and a decade on the technology side, it was a really nice opportunity to 
find a way to not just give back to the broader community, but build a real business um, that can scale over time. Right? This is this is not my fourth business. Um, funny enough, this is the first one that's a pure tech play. All of the <laughs> other companies have been more on the consulting side. And so it's been an interesting learning curve for me, not just growing and scaling a technology company in the water space, but doing it in the agricultural side um, and on the banking side, which is which is really new to me and really exciting. It's it's a nice opportunity to to learn about other aspects of water that I hadn't always been deeply involved in. Yeah, and and so can you? Um, I I want to explore the the notion of risk uh, from from the banking perspective. So wh- why does the bank need to? I mean, it, I think common sense will dictate you know why a bank should understand risk. But but can you? Could you talk about why the you know what the what the data that you're now collecting and and uh, compiling and sorting and organizing and, and you know how 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 is that being able to or how is a bank uh, able to use that information uh, to understand risk at a, you know a more basic level? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the easiest way to describe it is if you look at Experian or TransUnion and the FICO scores that banks use to help identify whether or not um, an individual or corporation has the right amount of credit capabilities on the lending side. Um, if you look at the makeup of those scores, there's there's 20, 30 different things that the scores look at in terms of creating a number. And so we're doing the same thing on the, on the water side. We've got 20 different data sets that we're looking at to identify, if you will, the, the credit worthiness of the water um, from a lending perspective. So in some ways, we're, we're kind of creating a FICO score for water, if you will. Um, so like anywhere in the water space, the data is highly fragmented um, on the agricultural side. So banks have been having a really hard time identifying and understanding where risk really lies. They understand that there's risk in water from an agricultural perspective. They understand that if there's a drought, there's a likelihood that farmers and growers may or may not be able to make some of their payments because the production side might not be where it needs to be. Um, Where they've had a harder time, however, is identifying specifically where that risk may be as they're making loans or inside of their existing loan portfolio. So we've been able to give them tool sets to one, take a look at new loans coming in the door and identify how risk could potentially play out from a water perspective, which has a really large impact on the grower's ability to produce the financials that they say they're gonna produce um, in the underwriting process. Right. And we'll also give them them the tools to look back at the broader portfolio that's already in existence and help identify where they can mitigate risk by maybe shifting their loans in other geographic areas. Yeah. I mean, that's, that sounds very interesting. I'm kind of curious, uh, uh, is, is there a way to kind of project into the future? I know that cause you know, cause when you're, when they're issuing these loans, um, you know, I don't know, I, I, I don't know how they're packaged in terms of, you know, what the term for repayment is, but I would imagine that climate change and, you know, you know, future risk of water is kind of a, a significant issue. And how do you address that aspect of it? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's one that we get all the time um, on the banking and the investment side of what is the water situation going to look like in five to 10 years? And no one really has a silver bullet for that. 
um, but we can absolutely use machine learning and some artificial intelligence to start doing predictive analytics. Um, so we're not necessarily telling a bank or an investor where water will be in five to 10 years, but we are able to create different scenarios and stress tests to help them understand the potential implications of the loans that they're giving out. So at least they have a better understanding of if certain scenarios happen where in the state of California, let's say we enter another drought, what are the potential implications based on prior experiences and future capabilities? So these are all things that we're building into our tool sets. Um, and it's, it's definitely not an easy thing to go do, but with the state of technology where it is today and the ability to aggregate large sets of data, um, we are able to get some pretty good analytics in place to help them make better decisions, which one, helps them identify where they wanna make loans, um, and two, helps them identify how they, how they price those loans um, in higher risk areas. Yeah, I, I would imagine that also it, it's going to factor a lot into, you know, the terms that the 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 agricultural um, producer can can get out of the bank and things like that. So I think there's this is going to just give more certainty around that loan. Um, and so I think that how that information is used is going to be really, really interesting. And, and I, I guess my thought would be that uh, whoever doesn't have this information is going to kind of be at a dis, an information disadvantage and may be able um, – they're not going to be able to negotiate as good a, a, a deal on the loan as, as they might otherwise. I, I, have, has anyone kind of talked about talked with you about that? We, yeah, we've had a number of discussions. And so a few trends that we're seeing in the agricultural space here in California, um, one is some lenders are looking at the space and – it's just too risky for them. Um, so we're actually seeing some lenders back out um, of, of providing loans here in California because they, they're just not comfortable with the potential risk on the water side. We're seeing other lenders go all in and say, this is what we do. We lend to the growing community. We're going to continue lending to the growing community. We just want to understand what the risk profiles are going to look like. Um, and so for them, um, we're seeing them prepare in advance which I think is a really smart strategy, right? Being able to understand the potential scenarios in the future, I think gives you much more capability and ability to make better decisions in both the short term and the long term. So the folks that we're seeing um, having higher rates of success are the ones that are planning for the future that are identifying the data and the information that they need in order to predict risk better. Um, we're seeing them have better capabilities on the lending side and building stronger relationships, quite honestly, with their growers. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that kind of, uh, partially answered my next question, which was, you know, how, how, how are you guys kind of working with all the different players in this industry to make, to help them make better decisions? And so I think you partially answered that, but to the extent you have more information, could you please kind of, kind of push that out there? Yeah, so like anything with water, um, collaboration is, is really important. And for me and for the company that we've built, collaboration is, is a core component to, to what we've been building. For two years, my partners and I ran, over, ran across the Central Valley of California to Northern California, Southern California, talking to hundreds of growers and bankers and investors and um, irrigation district managers and, and bureaucrats across the state. And what we were able to identify was that there is no single entity that has a one single solution um, across the state. And so what we've been able to do is really work collaboratively with 
collaboratively with a number of stakeholders to bring the information into our platform. So we're not working just with investors or, um, or, or lenders. We're also working with the growers directly. We're giving them tools to make better decisions on the farms. Um, we're working with various state agencies to help them move their data more swiftly to the people who need it. And we're working with local agencies as well who are responsible now for managing groundwater. Um, and we're giving them tools to better manage their groundwater resources. So across the state and across um, the work that we're doing, we are working with multiple stakeholders because it's important for everybody to really understand and interact in order to manage this one single resource that we have. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great answer. I think uh, the more information, the better. Um, so we, we've kind of been drilling down on on information and data and, and how all this impacts water. Let's let's drill back up, and, and I want to ask you kind of a more uh, uh, panoramic question, so to speak, and, and that is kind of what's, what has all this kind of taught you or how is it? How is it? Um, you know, how, how does this impacted your global view on water risk? Yeah, that is that's that's the million dollar question, Dave. Um, my my perspective on water, I've always thought was fairly broad, um, but I found a few blind spots. To be honest, um, I realized over the course of the past couple of years that water risk is much broader than we typically think about or talk about. Um, the implications of the, the, just on the agricultural side, the implications of water risk are huge. Um, as we start thinking about how we need to continue to feed a growing population around the globe, um, as we look at the fact that water supplies will outstrip demand over the next 20 to 30 years, those play real significant roles um, in terms of how we better manage our water resources and a lot of the times what I've been seeing are very specific technologies that solve very specific problems. And that's good and needed in the space. Um, but I think like, like anything in the water sector, the discussion needs to continue to evolve um, in the form of how does water play in the overall circular economy? So we're seeing this on the water reuse side, right? Like we can use water more than one time. And typically the discussion around water is a discussion of one or two instances of use of water, but not how water cycles through the entire ecosystem. And so I think there's major opportunities for the urban environments and the agricultural environments and the environments themselves to interact more closely, not just at a local scale, but at a global scale. And there's some interesting groups doing some really great work in that space. Um, our goal ultimately is to scale the business, not just across agriculture in the West and in the United States, but also around the globe and across multiple industries. Um, the scarcity issues that we're facing and the risk that we're facing from a water perspective touches almost every single manufacturing environment, production environment, um, food safety environments. And so we see tremendous opportunity to increase the ability to have real discussions and change the ways in which we manage water around the globe. Right. Right. Um, let's bring it back down and talk about some of the things you, you indicated there in terms of like recycled water, things like that. I want to, I want to explore how that factors into, um, the better quote, better decisions that, that growers are making, you know, I, 
if if a is a you know is a bank going to be more willing to lend based on the data that you're kind of looking if if the grower is using um, a, a more sophisticated irrigation model, for example, you know, drip irrigation versus flood irrigation or something like that. I mean, how have, have you guys been able to drill down and figure out uh, how that impacts uh, water risk? Yeah, we're, we're actually doing a few studies right now with some universities um, in that space. Um, but we're definitely seeing on the lending side a deeper desire and um, a better uptake of, of lending activity on those on those farms and with those growers who are able to leverage technology to better service their farms. In some cases in California, it still makes sense to actually flood irrigate because there's groundwater recharge capabilities in certain areas. Um, and so I think the, the tricky part right now in California is identifying those areas where flood irrigation actually makes sense versus drip irrigation. Um, and I think the other thing we're seeing now is more of a trend for identifying the actual consumptive use of plants as opposed to throwing out general numbers um, and looking at, you know, looking at where the water goes in multiple facets as opposed to assuming all of that water just is going to crop growth. But I think we're, we're also facing, and not just in California, but in other parts of the country, serious issues around nutrient runoff from farms. So there's a lot of opportunity for farmers and growers and technology companies to help mitigate those kinds of risks. Um, but overall, I, I think the lending community and the growing community, we're seeing more and more adoption on the farms of smarter irrigation technologies to reduce the amount of water that is needed um, on the farm. And so it's used a bit more efficiently and effectively. Yeah. How, how does the, the crop that is grown play into all this, you know, uh, uh, because if you're growing alfalfa, which is pretty, you know, water intensive from what I understand, uh, you know, that's probably not as high a, high a, it's not a value as valuable a crop as say an almond, which might use, you know, just as much water. So uh, how, how does the crop that is being grown factor into, uh, the, the whole risk equation? Yeah, so the risk equation now um, in, in California and the Central Valley in particular, which, which has a number of, of hard crops like almonds, um, the real issue right now is identifying what parts of the Central Valley are, are going to end up being fallowed. Um, so I think we're going to see a transition from kind of lower value crops into the higher value crops. Um, we'll see some farmland that ends up getting fallowed over time. Um, just because there's not enough water to support all of the farmland currently in production. Um, there's some really interesting studies right now going on to help identify what percentage of farmland may go out of production over time. Um, but from what I've heard and what we've started to see is that from an economic standpoint, um, we don't think there's going to be a huge economic loss across the state, um, just a production loss in terms of different types of crops being being farmed. So. People are definitely looking at the economics more of what is being farmed and where the water is going. I think it'd be really interesting to to start to see the not just the the water that's embedded in the in the various farms and the various fruits coming off the farms, but also the the energy embeddedness and the economics of all of that. Because I think it would tell a really interesting story of economic viability in agriculture. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. So, Chris, um, you, you've done a great job. I, I, you know, 
Are there things that uh, I have not asked you that you think would be important to uh, relay to the listener? So I think one of the most exciting things for me personally isn't just that we now have a really cool business in the ag space and water, um, kind of at the nexus, right, of agriculture, water, and finance. Um, but there's there's an entirely new story around what it takes to build a startup um, in the water sector. And I think we found an interesting path where traditionally startups in the water sector have a really hard time finding a foothold and growing and developing a business. Um, we've, I think, been very fortunate in that we have a really great team. I've got five full-time team members now. Um, we've essentially bootstrapped our company to revenue, which is incredibly hard to do. And I'm not sure I would suggest a lot of people go and do it. Um, I think there's other ways <laughs> in order to, to build a business. Um, but it's been really good for us, and I think I've learned a lot along the way. And so I think a few things that might be coming out of this, um, in addition to just a really solid business, are some more thoughts around what it takes to build a startup in the water sector um, and what it means to be a waterpreneur in the space. So there's probably another book in the future. Um, eventually, I'd like to loop back around to all of the folks that participated in the first book. I think it would be great to see where everybody is at. Um, but more than anything, I'd just like to encourage all of the listeners to just continue doing what they're doing and continue to make an impact and continue to take action because that's what really matters the most is actually doing things rather than talking about them. And I think, Dave, you're a great proponent of this, getting folks on the on your podcast that really helps showcase what people are doing to make a difference in the world of water. So I, I commend you on that, and thank you for doing that for the, the industry. Uh, you bet. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And I'm happy to have great people like you come on and be willing to, to share their experiences and, and help spread that message. Because I have the easy part, right? I just ask the questions. And, and people like you are, are, are charged with, uh, you know, really being the mouthpiece to get to get out the message. So I, I, uh, I, I thank, you know, you and, you know, this is your second stint on. And it's been, it's been uh, over 100 episodes since we had you last on. So I, I can't believe it took me this long to get to get you back on. So, um, well, Chris, I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your time with us. Really appreciate it. And, uh, let's catch up sooner the next time than we, uh, that when we let it uh, go this last time. That sounds great, Dave. Thank you a lot. You bet. Talk to you soon, Chris. All right. Talk to you Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Peacock of Aqua Oso Technologies. As you can tell, Chris does a fantastic job. He's, he's, I think he's really found a niche here. Um, and I, I can't wait to hear how it goes because it, it, this just seems so important and such, uh, you know, as, as he kind of recognized a, a, a data fragmented sector, just like, you know, the utility industry is fragmented. Well, the water information industry is fragmented and all these, uh, you know, all these market participants are out there trying to figure things out. And he's, he's really uh, doing a great job, uh, you know, culling information you know, getting the information, the right information in front of the right people to make the right decisions so that we, we can use water in the most, in the, in the, in the best possible way. So, um, kudos to Chris for coming up from thinking outside the box for getting, uh, Aqua Oso going in California and the water account, water ag economy. Um, he just does a great job. Well, you can check out the show notes for this episode, uh, at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one, three, five, leave a comment on those show notes to let me know what you thought about the interview, or you can email me at David at the You can also tweet at me at DTM one nine nine three, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. 
And please do me a favor, as I said at the top of the show, please rate and review the, the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and any other podcast uh, directory that you listen to it on. That would really be appreciated. Just a great way to help others find out, the, find out about the podcast and why you think it's an important podcast. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.